Sir Balford, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. As he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. He analyzes all baseball in Fangraphs Audio. In particular this week, we consider a piece that Cameron has submitted to the electronic pages of Fangraphs piece called A Response to Bob Ryan, which is not just a clever title. It actually is a response to a piece that Bob Ryan wrote for the pages of the Boston Globe on Sunday, the Sunday edition of the Boston Globe, asking a simple question, does the average fan care about advanced stats? Does the average fan care about advanced stats? Dave Cameron wrote, I think, a respectful piece and substantive piece, a respectful and substantive piece simultaneously. Much of the conversation which follows follows loose strands from Dave Cameron's response. Questions about, as well, uh, the cult of enthusiasm which might surround not only baseball, but automobiles, uh, board games, anything around which a cult of enthusiasm can grow. We develop in a very small way a sort of taxonomy of fandom. And Cameron also asks uh, the tough questions regarding my life as a Red Sox fan and then as not a Red Sox fan. You didn't like rooting for parsimonious racists? It's audio. It features Dave Cameron... And it begins right now. Dave Cameron. Hey. There you are, Mr. Fangraphs. Uh, well, I don't think that's my title. <laughs> what is your title then? Um... Uh, I work for Mr. Fangrass. It's true. I guess, yeah. yeah. Dave. Although I think, I would think that, uh, I mean, listen. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think David Alfman is, uh, is Mr. Fangrass. But I think that the, the site, I mean, listen, it's pretty clear you have a number of flaws, Dave Cameron. But your one main virtue, uh, one of your main virtues has uh, been, has been making that, that site what it is. Uh, well, <clears throat> I mean, I appreciate the compliment. I think, uh, I think Fangraphs was amazing before it employed me, and it would be amazing if I was ceased to be employed by, by the site. But I appreciate the, uh, your, your attempt at a compliment. Yeah, it would, that, that's as close as it's gonna get. Yeah. Just, just so we all know. And I think that you feel the same way about me. Uh, yeah, no, correct. It's a, you would not, uh, you would be remiss, unless maybe it was at my funeral. Maybe then. Maybe then you would offer a couple kind words. Uh, probably not. <laughs> I Even, think if I am asked to speak at your funeral, something has gone horribly something's wrong. Something's gone really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow we were the only two people left in the building. <laughs> right, yeah. This was some kind of apocalypse. Apparently. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. the only member still with a voice. Yeah. Do you have any attraction to uh, apocalyptic stories? I don't, and, don't. and their rapid rise uh, has kind of been shocking to me about how everyone loves zombies now, while I find them annoying. I guess so. I think I, I I don't know for a fact, but I have the inkling that it has been borne out, and I don't know in what study I read it that there is some correlation between zombie stories or apocalyptic stories and maybe certain kinds of social issues, uh, but I don't. I don't remember because there was like sort of a huge spate of them, wasn't there? In like maybe the fifties and sixties or something, zombie stories and apocalyptic stories. I, I don't. I'm actually not a historian of zombies. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Okay, I mean, yeah, if there was like a zombiereference.com, then right. maybe I would, uh, or zombie graphs, 
Maybe it was, yeah, I don't want to. Uh, you know. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I think it's the answer. All right. You don't know. But here, uh, here's actually that leads me to the what I think it might be the only question I have for you uh, for in for this edition of Fingers. But I think it is. I think it has a number of. I don't know consequences. Number of points to in, ancillary to it, and it has to do with um, a piece that you've literally. I think you've literally just posted it. It's the the, sure. the response to Bob Ryan. Yes, right. We have we for for those who weren't aware of our emails, we have postponed the recording of this podcast like nine times so I could finish this piece. Right, and 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 I have not. I think I, I read. I just sort of checked it out. I think you were sort of in the the middle of it, just to kind of get an idea. W- 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 what your um, what your direction would be, the tone of it would be, uh, but actually, I think I did, I think I probably got one of the central sort of points of it. It doesn't really have a lot to do with Bob Ryan, um, but it has more to do with the way that you characterize, um, I guess, the, those both the, the sorts of people who write for and the sorts of people who read fangraphs, which would be as a you can build off this too, which would be a, a sort of group, a niche group of enthusiasts. Right. I think um, – so when Ryan's column originally went up yesterday, I saw some people kind of responding to a section of the of the article that has been a common refrain uh, among sports writers or people who may not be as specifically inclined, wondering whether we even enjoy the game. And that's kind of been the part of the column that people have latched on to and have become defensive because I think – the reality is uh, the statistical community is made up of people who are extremely enthusiastic about baseball and love the game more than anyone else I know. Uh, and so I think there's a defense mechanism in place where anyone ever, when someone questions our enthusiasm or our love for the sport itself, is to respond vitriolically and, and to, do, to put some walls up and say, how dare you question my, my love of this thing that I have a deep affection for, when in reality I think that was not the most interesting part of Ryan's column. And the, the question that he was trying to ask, that was essentially a uh, probably an unfortunate side note. Um, when he was essentially asking, do fans care about these numbers? And do, and do they care about this kind, this kind of way of thinking about sports? Which I find an interesting question, and I think was worth responding to. Right. And uh, the, your basic... The basic summary of your opinion? Do, I mean, do, I guess, well, so, potentially this is one dangerous thing, uh, maybe, right, is, is asserting that there is such thing as an average fan. Because while there is such thing as averages, uh, right, you could say, here are people with these opinions, these people with these opinions, you average it together, there, there may not be any, there's not like it's necessarily a group of average fan. I mean, what what do you take? Do you, do you think that that is a thing that exists, or if not, what is it an expression of? I mean, I think the term I used more than average fan was casual fan, uh, and I think this is um, a generality, but one that probably does exist. I, uh, so I'm going to use my cousin Nick as an example of uh, maybe not a casual fan, but someone who Ryan is maybe talking about. Uh, my cousin Nick is a rabid San Francisco Giants fan. Lives in Manhattan. Uh, he watches every single game, not live necessarily because of his job, but he will avoid spoilers and avoid it, knowing the outcome so that he can watch every game in its entirety, all 162 of them, all season long. Uh, a massive baseball fan, uh, you know, a guy I get along with fairly well, uh, knows who I am, knows what I do for a living. He could not care less about <laughs> MOBA or FIP or war or any of this. He just wants the Giants to win. 
this is this is the enjoyment he gets out of baseball is rooting for his team, and I think that is kind of the the mass appeal and the larger audience of baseball is people whose enjoyment is derived from their team winning, and they want to root for their team winning. And I think this is not just baseball. This is all sports. People uh, place some value by associating with a certain team, from, most likely from their home city, and say, I will be happy when they win and sad when they lose. And they they hand over part of their joy to the uh, performance of another, which is not logical at all, but is something that is aesthetically pleasing or uh, brings us... Uh, into a sense of community, and it's something that I think is the driving force for a lot of people to enjoy sports. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned. So I could tell you that um, the moment when I stopped becoming a Red Sox fan, actually, well, so in part of it was part of it was because uh, they did they did a thing which I knew which produced a, a, an amount of joy in me when they won the World Series. Of course, it produced an amount of joy in me that I knew. At first, only subconsciously and then consciously, couldn't I could never replicate in any if I were a Red Sox fan for a hundred thousand more years? Because it just those set of circumstances, you know, like the side, the length of the drought, and then beating the Yankees in such a spectacular fashion. Like I knew that would not be replicated. The other thing was reading Mind Game, uh, which was a book produced by Baseball Perspectives at the time, and I think which uh, friends of Fangraphs, uh, Dane Perry and uh, Jonah Carey were instrumental in, and Paul Swyden, uh, were instrumental in producing, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you realize that the reason they didn't win the Red Sox for so many numbers of years had a lot to do with the fact that they were racist and excessively parsimonious. <laughs> and, and so then I thought, well, I really enjoyed being a Red Sox fan, but on the other hand, uh, I realized that like maybe the thing that I'm cheering for and which made it less interesting for me as an individual, I should say, was like the amount of money the team has and how well it's spent. And then like a certain amount of luck, what, like seven wins this way or that every year. And that made that made the idea of fandom a little bit less appealing to me at the time. But I suppose... You, did, you didn't like rooting for parsimonious racists? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, right. I didn't particularly like um, doing that. But what, I, uh, what else I understood was, I guess, that it was... For me, again, there were there were some questions I knew. It, well, and especially because the team had been um, bought by new ownership, and it was largely because of that shift that they had won. And so, I guess I was interested in the root causes of that. And I knew I knew most importantly that Mark Bellhorn was somehow important <laughs> <laughs> to their success. And so that's and that's sort of what me, uh, you know, in addition to like a number of other things. Uh, you know, like I, you know, I'd become acquainted with, you know, Bill James' work and, of course, Rob Nyers, et cetera. And I thought, oh, this is an interesting thing and I don't know enough about it and I want to learn more about it. But and maybe that's other people's the way that they find their way to sabermetrics or not. But what you're suggesting is that's not representative of maybe a large portion, portion of people who also enjoy baseball. Right. No, I, I think – uh, fandom is an interesting thing, and how one goes about either acquiring or losing fandom can be, uh, uh, you know, different on a personal level. But I do think Ryan's overall generalization is correct, in that there is a majority of the fan base of baseball as a whole who do not care about the numbers that we're publishing, and they don't care about the arguments that we're having necessarily. Uh, I think my opinion 
is that they care about the numbers they care about because they were told to care about them, not because they came about them organically. And I think that's kind of one of the tenets of my piece is that as as the storytellers of baseball, I think we have something of an obligation or at least a vested interest in attempting to tell the story that is true and to help people who are casual fans or average fans, whatever you want to call them, the, the those people who are not so interested in the statistical mundane calculations of war, uh, to help them grasp onto facts, essentially, rather than propagating myths. And so I think in Ryan's column, one of the, the points that I think he's trying to make is why bother with advanced stats when most people don't care about them? I think my response would be, uh, why bother with flawed stats that tell the wrong story? Like, if we're going to use numbers to tell stories about baseball to people who are uh, looking for someone to essentially explain to them what happened on the field, maybe they only watched the last three innings, maybe they're watching on SportsCenter, uh, maybe they're reading about it in the paper the next day, although less and less so, maybe they're reading it on a blog the next day, they're looking for someone with some level of expertise or some established level of understanding of the game to tell them what happened. So if that's our role as journalists, and if that's Bob Ryan's role at the Boston Globe and and everyone who works in the baseball media industry is to help explain what happened on the field, why not use numbers that accurately do that? Why rely on numbers that uh, are clearly incorrect in uh, a good number of cases as batting average and pitcher wins and some of these metrics are? Uh, and I think my hope would be not so much that we uh, overwhelm the casual fan with numbers, but when we present them with numbers, let's present them with numbers that tell the right story. Yeah, that's interesting. And I have to think about this, you know, you know when you listen to a baseball podcast, and you know what's actually unique is, um, you know, for example, Vin Scully is beloved, right? Yes. One thing I noticed about Vin Scully is he's it's very easy to listen to him, not only because I wish he were my grandfather, um, and he's really good at telling stories. But he actually – he's very careful, I think, to tread lightly in places where maybe he feels as though he has he has less expertise. And so this actually – and I noticed like you know he, he really will take a, a position of um, exceeding humility, which he probably doesn't need to because he could kind of do whatever he wants at this point. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but he, he's very careful, I think, to be um, – to – uh, demonstrate humility when he gets to areas where he doesn't. He feels like he's he's not. He doesn't know as much. And I think that that is a, that's that's a thing we. I think anybody could learn from, right? Where you just the closer you get to the places where you, you're not comfortable, you say, hmm, yeah, this. Uh, I'll just you know offer something here, but it's not the it's not the you know uh, it's not gospel. Uh, yeah, no, I think that that is a, an admirable trait and probably one that the sabermetric community could learn from. I think, you know, perhaps part of the resistance to, uh, newer metrics or newer ways of thinking about baseball has been some of the abrasive tone that has gone along with, uh, attempting to, um, re-educate, uh, traditional mindsets or, or voices who've thought differently about baseball. Even if that re-education was necessary or uh, the numbers that are being offered are better than the, the numbers that are attempting to be replaced. There's certainly a, a tone issue that, uh, I think Scully is, is one who has done a very good job of 
kind of saying, you know, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And the statistical community has not always done that as well, which might be one of the reasons why someone like Bob Ryan, who's, you know, not a troll, this is not a guy who I think is out there just trying to stir up page views and take ad hominem shots at people. Uh, you know, he, he clearly is not just, uh, throwing things out there and casting aspersions at, at a community. I think he actually believes the things that he wrote. Um, and perhaps part of his aversion to this kind of way of seeing baseball is the, the attitude of, <laughs> that has gone along with, uh, people who have seen baseball this way. And I think if we could, uh, maybe be a little more open <laughs> and a little less forceful, perhaps, uh, you know, what the, the old, uh, axiom about you catch more flies with honey like maybe we need to try that well one of the one of the points you make one of the words you use was uh, that of storyteller right yeah right. which is you the the way to the way to i think ultimately well fear and anger is one is one method yeah. uh, but ultimately to sort of seduce people um or to convert is not the precise word that I mean, but to allow them to see the virtues of your argument. Uh, one way is to make them feel good about doing so, as opposed to as opposed to, to feel bad, right? Right. And so, really, the person who has the person or group of people or whatever, the person who has the voice that's most pleasant to listen to, uh, is the one. You know, like you said, like people just want to ha- have an a- authority on the matter, explain to them what happened. And if you're able to do that in a way that where people enjoy reading it, then this seems to me, whoever that is, they're the ones with the power. Uh, they're the ones with the power to to uh, persuade people. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, inviting someone into the group rather than shaming them into it is probably a better. Uh, a better methodology. If we want people to, if our goal is to educate, and I think that, you know, that might sound arrogant. And I, I realize that talk, when you talk about you're educating someone else, it comes across as you have knowledge that the other person does not. Uh, but I think when it comes to an enthusiast versus a casual observer, there is some level of uh, teacher student relationship there i mean you know i think we can you know we spent like seven podcasts talking about your car search right like you're not a car enthusiast and this is one of the things that you've mentioned is you don't care about uh torque and drivetrain and how fast the car goes around corners or the stickiness of its tires you want a box that gets you from a to b safely but at the same time you want to buy a reliable box uh and so you have done some research in enthusiast communities or among people who are well-educated in the segment, to try and learn what their opinion is, right? And I think this is where a lot of the casual baseball fans fall, is they want to enjoy baseball, and they want to know what actually happened, and they're seeking the opinion or the advice of those who are considered experts in the field. So I think it is incumbent upon the storytellers, upon those who have been placed in positions to tell the, the casual fan who's asking questions and is looking for uh, a narrative to, to repeat to their friends to tell the right one. No, I'm, I'm interested because you because you are obviously among this group of enthusiasts of uh, baseball fans, right? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right, of course. Now, do you feel? I would. I, I wonder. Do you feel a greater kinship with, uh, for example, your um, your cousin? Was it, was it Nick? Right. Nick. Yeah. Nick. Do you feel a greater kinship with Nick? over baseball or do you feel 
uh, I have more of a kinship with um, like the guys at uh, what's the damn car car site you told me about? Uh, the truth about cars. Truth about cars, right? Where where they? It's clear that they don't. Uh, they, I mean, who knows if they care about baseball or not, right? But the method by which they approach cars is, I think, one which might appeal to you with regard to how you approach baseball. Do you? I mean, are you more likely to feel an affinity uh, with the with 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 your cousin Nick again, the way he cheers here cheers for baseball, or more of the car nerds? I think probably my cousin because he's family. <laughs> I think I'm more likely right, to, hang out not, to, okay. <laughs> to hang out with my cousin than some random guy who writes about cars on the internet. Uh, but I don't think that's what you were asking. Yeah, uh, no, it wasn't at all. <laughs> no, I'm sure, think, and I'm sure he's a great guy anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, no, right. Uh, I think um, I would say when thinking when writing this post, uh, there was a sentence that I deleted a few times because it felt like something that I would say that isn't actually true, but would have made sense in the piece. But I wrote the sentence a couple of times of, like, most of my friends don't care at all about Woba or FIP or war or anything like that. And then I realized that that statement's not actually true because most of my friends come from the enthusiast community. I, I do have friends who are casual baseball fans, uh, but I have fewer of those than I have enthusiast baseball fans, mm-hmm. or enthusiast baseball friends. And I think uh, one of the realities is we kind of um, we migrate towards our own, right? Like part of human endeavor is to find people like us that we enjoy spending time with. And one of the reasons we enjoy spending time with them is we have common interests. And so I think I am more likely to find enthusiast baseball friends than I am casual baseball friends, not because I don't like them or like the way that they see baseball, but because we do approach it differently and we have less common ground than if they're watching baseball while also flipping to NASCAR or MMA or okay. golf and don't have any preference between all, between them versus someone who only wants to watch baseball and wants to talk about baseball and then read about baseball, that person and I will just have more in common. Right. And there's also – I think it should be said too, like besides probably uh, some of the reasons you mentioned, there's also a, a shorthand that can exist between you that that you don't necessarily that, – that would not necessarily exist between you and someone – who uh, enjoys the game and likes, like my dad, my father likes the game, but he does, has no desire to research it any further, and right. that's fine. But the, what it creates is that, like that some of the shorthand that I will have uh, developed with, you know, someone like you, for example, like I, we could just cite war, and we're both like, and it's not even that we both that you and I regard wins above replacement as an infallible metric. It's just that even when we cite it, we also we recognize simultaneously its strengths and its weaknesses, and we don't have to have the entire conversation. Right. There is a language to the community that is not that dissimilar from people who have very specific interests about anything else have their own language. Uh, you know, if you're into board games, you have a language of uh, uh, kind of specific things about those games that will allow you to have a conversation with people who are also into board games where anyone who is not will immediately turn out. Or, you know, my wife, when she has conversations with uh, her friends about fashion, I have nothing to add because they're talking about things that mean nothing to me. It's almost like going to another country and hearing someone speak another language because we do develop essentially languages around our interests. Now, do you? Here's a question, though. Do you feel... Do you feel... Let's see. Is there someone who has expertise in a certain subject, right, that is not necessarily a subject of which you know, but you 
their, 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 their the amount of like for example Jeff Sullivan in volcanoes. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever have you ever asked Jeff Sullivan about volcanoes? Does Jeff Sullivan's interest in volcanoes does his enthusiasm for that subject do you have a does it resonate with you at all? Does it make you excited about volcanoes because you can see what you can see volcanoes through his eyes essentially? I have talked to him about volcanoes. I have to admit that part of the trouble I have of getting into volcanoes is they all have like Icelandic names. Yeah. They're very important. Like he's strangely he even words he, that sound like they're just like a combination of like seven different words from three other languages that don't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Strangely, even the ones not in Iceland have Icelandic yeah. names. They're all named with like J's and K's and uh, double A's and is a very Nordic naming uh, culture. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in talking with with Jeff about volcanoes, I have noticed his passion for them. That is not necessarily. Uh, transferred to me, but it's interesting to hear anyone talk about anything they're passionate about. Well, maybe not anything, but uh, I think when someone is passionate about a, a subject, hearing them discuss their passion is more interesting than just having a random conversation. Right, and I know that one thing that happens in uh, high school and college, for example, is that uh, I know it happened to me, and I know of people to whom it happened, is that you, one's favorite class might not necessarily be have anything to do with the subject matter, but rather the the degree to which that professor or instructor is able to is able to to use your term is able to tell the story of that subject. Right. Yeah. I think we enjoy storytelling. As, a, as I mean, I think that's uh, a human trait. Is we generally enjoy people who can spin a good yard. Right. And I will say that like, you know, like any like Ken Burns documentary, for example, he's able to make anything interesting. Well, that's not true. <laughs> you, you I have seen a few Ken Burns documentaries that lasted about 10 minutes and I was like, I'm out. Sorry, You're done. Ken. You're done? Yeah. I like baseball, but I'm not into this. Yeah, that's right. Although I will say, this is totally beside the point. Uh, we watched the one on the, uh, we started to watch the one in the West, right? And, yeah. uh, it, uh, it may not shock you to learn that, like, at least the first two chapters, or at least the first chapter of the story of the West concerns Native Americans a lot on account of they were there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there was one guy who was a, an expert on Native Americans. And I, I recognized his name and it, it turns out he was married to Louise Erdrich, who is a popular American novelist and I think part Native American herself. He was not. I think he grew up in a Jewish household, although I could be wrong about that. He and Louise Erdrich got married, or at least they were coupled to, you know, and they adopted at least one kid. And she accused him down the road of molesting at least one of the children. And then he killed himself in a motel not two miles from uh, where, where my dad lived when I was growing up. You are really attempting to end this podcast on a high note. <laughs> the darkest. You would that, that's uh, when you know when with stories like that when they're when they uh, when horrible stories are close to your home they you feel part of the intrigue and that was my interest in that and it, Ken Burns didn't touch on that did he? He didn't interview you. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't <laughs> ask you what it was like growing up two miles away from this house. Or uh, yeah, motel, dirty, kind of a dirty motel. Yeah. Right off of I-93, in case anyone listening has any familiarity with I believe Exit 12. Exit 12 on I-93 in New Hampshire. So there you go. 
I will knock it off of that exit. No, don't do it. Unless you want to visit, unless you want to go to Able Insurance, of which uh, insurance uh, insurance agency my dad is the owner and operator. Oh yeah, oh, I would love to buy insurance from Mr. Stuley. Yeah, he's a yeah. We have a long line. My my grandfather also was a insurance insurance salesman. Huh. So there you go. And you didn't you didn't want to follow in this family legacy? I will tell you, and this is we've we've steered terribly off the beaten path here, but you, will, you steered. I'm just going along for the ride. I actually worked a couple different summers for my dad's agency, and uh, my job was to to call people before like 11 a.m. and tell them that their that their insurance had relapsed or had lapsed. Their insurance had lapsed. And uh, it turns out that the, the demographic who allows their insurance to lapse, their policies to, ala- to lapse, is also very similar to the demographic that is not awake before 11 a.m. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so I woke up an entire subpopulation of Concord, New Hampshire, to inform <laughs> them that their insurance was good. And they're like, they're like, A, I hate you, and B, yeah. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> and I was, you know, I, for one, am shocked. That receiving a phone call from you did not just immediately cause them to give you all their money. Yeah, well, my dad told me – my dad said, well, what you need to say to them is tell them you have a friendly reminder that their insurance has lapsed or about to lapse. And I said, I don't think there's any way to give that reminder in a friendly fashion to people who will not they're – not pre- they're not prepared to receive it in a friendly fashion. Yeah, I think uh, this is why auto renewal was invented. Yeah, I think it partly would. Don't tell to my dad. To get rid of the interaction with you. Don't tell my dad about that. But uh, but it's actually – it actually does – it maybe paints – it maybe it actually uh, creates one last point we could touch on here is that there is a certain – there may exist or there may not exist. There has to be a certain readiness on the part of the party who is relating the information or the story, telling the story, and there may also – have to be a certain amount of readiness in the the party, the party that is prepared to that is about to receive the story, right? In the case of auto insurance, in the greater Concord area, the people whom I was calling were not ready to hear the story I had to tell, regardless of how pleasantly I told it. Well, that's probably because your story involved give me money. <laughs> yes. So you suggest that there's a certain. I think the content of your story was the problem. If you were calling to say, I would like to give you money, mm. they would have been able to receive that anytime. Right. You could have called them at 6 a.m. and been like, you get a $1,000. They would be into that. They would have ex- been excited and loved you. Or even just, guess what? Your, your insurance lapsed, but someone renewed it for you. You have it for another year for free. Right. Yeah. Anything that involves increased wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a story that we are all able to accept at any time, basically. But doesn't doesn't sometimes the narrative the 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 narrative that accompanies if it's told, I guess some of the ways that sometimes the ways that it's told the uh, the story stories about baseball involving advanced metrics can threaten how people can can threaten uh, people's identities to some degree. Yes, and livelihoods. I mean to. Bring it back to the money issue. I mean, I think, uh, and this is speculation. I believe part of the reason for the resistance to kind of the sabermetric movement or the statistical analysis of baseball is because it has coincided with or been, it has ridden the coattails of the rise of the internet. And this kind of analysis is 
almost exclusively found online, and the Internet has essentially killed newspapers or has destroyed the business model that they worked on for a 100 years and is threatening the careers of many journalists. And so these two things are linked of the rise of analysis of baseball in a certain way from the Internet, which has also harmed their jobs and in some cases ended their jobs. Right, and I will say that if I am, you know, especially if I am close to retirement, say within five or ten years of retirement, and some jerks, some 23-year-old jerks start introducing new ways of discussing the thing that I've been covering for 40 years, I will harbor, I will harbor some, some grief for them. Yeah, I think if I'm, I don't expect I'll still be doing this when I'm 65, but if I'm 65 and still writing about baseball and some new wave of data is released where, you know, we finally have all of the information that has, we've all, ever wanted and we now know everything about baseball and it invalidates <laughs> everything I've written for the last 40 years and proves that FIP is entirely wrong and uh, you know, the UZR is the worst metric in the history of baseball. And these things are proven to be just total bunk and everything, the sum of my career has been <laughs> worthless. I will not receive that well. I will, I will not just happily lie down and be like, well, great. I'm on board. Uh, sign me up. I, there will be some kind of natural defense mechanism to be like, certainly I could not have been completely and utterly wrong for 40 years. And I don't think we're trying to say that Bob Ryan has been wrong for 40 years, but I think there's, some sense to almost an ownership of things like batting average and home runs and RBIs where we say, I've voted on awards this way, I've made decisions this way, I've written thousands of columns based on these ideas, and you're telling me these ideas are wrong, you are essentially telling me that my career is invalid. And, you know, it's understandable that someone would not want to just accept that lying down. Right. Uh, one last point before we go. I, I also think, though, actually one way, I think one thing, and I don't know if this has been emphasized enough, uh, I don't. I don't think it's been emphasized enough by me, perhaps. But if if the if one of the interests is in making the community palatable to a larger crowd, not that it has to be, uh, not that that necessarily needs to be a thing, but it's actually true that many of the developments that have been made, I think, in what would be considered a safe metric community in recent years, have gotten closer and closer to those sorts of things. That, or they sort of resemble scouting in some ways, and I'm thinking in 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 very big, um, very much a part of uh, of uh, pitch effects, for example. And then whenever the the sort of fielding version of that same thing is is made available to the public, if it is at all. Uh, but pitch effects is essentially scouting data. Correct. Right. You said this is what's happening to the pitch. This is not. We're not doing it. We're the only measurements that come out are about a pitch that is actually being thrown. And so, you know, we could, you know, make correlations or whatever, but really you're just describing the qualities of uh, of a pitcher's repertoire. Yeah, I think another way to say it is the scouting is just data collection, right? I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of this narrative built around, like, scouting versus numbers, but scouting is, in essence, the collection of data. Is You're going out there and saying, how hard does this guy throw? How fast does he run to first base? How fast does he run from first to third? How strong is his arm? How, you know, like you are essentially, uh, attempting to quantify in some way the physical tools and, and skills of a player. 
uh, now we have systems that are doing that as well. And so they are uh, replicating the work of the scouts just without a human interaction. And this is, you know, a common thing in industry of technology essentially replacing human need to go collect information because now we have a system that can do it for us. Yeah. All right. Well, I think you've uh, fulfilled your obligations more and more. The uh, well, bottom line is uh, let's all be friends. Let's all be friends. I think that is the goal. Let's all be friends. Yeah. All right. All right, Dave Cameron. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, hold on for one second. Uh, in, uh, question for you. But uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for making your weekly appearance. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, all right. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, Carson Zestuli. And this has been uh, just a friendly edition. Just a friendly edition of Fangraphs Audio.